Welcome to Artificiality, where minds meet machines. We founded Artificiality to help people make sense of artificial intelligence. Every week, we publish essays, podcasts, and research to help you be smarter about AI. Please check out all of Artificiality at www.artificiality.world. One of our longtime subscribers recently said to us, What I love about you is that you're regularly talking about things three years ahead of everyone else. That inspired us to look back through our catalog of conversations to see which ones we think are most relevant now. Today, we're revisiting one of our most thought-provoking episodes, originally recorded in April 2022, featuring Barbara Tversky, the author of Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. This episode is a great way to start 2024 because we are all about to experience what are known as large multimodal models, or LMMs, models which go beyond text and bring in more sensory modalities, including spatial information. Tversky's insights into spatial reasoning and embodied cognition are more relevant than ever in the era of multimodal models in AI. These models, which combine text, images, and other data types, mirror our human ability to process information across various sensory inputs. The parallels between Tversky's research and large multimodal models in AI are striking. Just as our physical interactions with the world shape our cognitive processes, these AI models learn and adapt by integrating diverse data types, offering a more holistic understanding of the world. Her work sheds light on how we might improve AI's ability to think and reason spatially, enhancing its application in fields ranging from navigation systems to virtual reality. As we revisit our interview with Tversky, we're reminded of the importance of considering human-like spatial reasoning and embodied cognition in advancing AI technology. Join us as we explore these intriguing concepts with Barbara Tversky, uncovering the essential role of spatial reasoning in both human cognition and artificial intelligence. Barbara, thank you very much for being with us on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. Perhaps you could start off with giving our listeners um, uh, a bit of an overview of your book. We found it quite fascinating, but I'd like to hear it from you a bit to give the, the central thesis of the book and how you came to it. Okay, so in in some sense, I came to it in graduate school as a contrarian. At that point, people were, partly because of philosophy, partly psychology, partly intuitions, were emphasizing language as the carrier, the main carrier of thought. And it occurred to me that we remember hundreds of faces. We can recognize them. There's no way we can describe them. Same with scenes. We, we have just a huge amount of information in our brains that we use every day, sounds of voices that don't have comparable verbal or verbal-like, proposition-like representations. So I love language. Um, as a friend said, words are some of my favorite visuals. Um, and I like using words. I like crafting things with words. But they seemed insufficient to capture human cognition and human communication. And it occurred to me that partly coming from a background of, of many artists, architects, and thinking about those things, um, they, it, it occurred to me that space takes up 
half the cortex, arguably, that it evolved far earlier than language, and that it had its own logic and its own structure, different from the structure of language. So language always served to me as a background, syntax, semantics, pragmatics. I love it, and it always served as a contrast, but also as a means of describing space, spatial situations, um, abstract situations based on spatial. So language was always there, but I thought spatial thinking was neglected. And what I mean by spatial thinking is acting in the spaces that we inhabit, including mental ones, with the things that are in it. And that, to me, formed the basis for other thought, abstract thought in many ways, and the book tries to show that, beginning with the brain and going into language and going into diagrams and showing the spatial foundations of each of those into gestures, which represent thinking in many of the ways that language does, but less arbitrarily. If I point to something, you know, you can follow my point. If I say something's big and use big gestures or tall, or even if I say somebody's at the top of the class and gesture that, you get it right away. There is something natural about my mapping those things to actions in space. So I, I started to explore the many ways we think in using space, using the objects in it, and then the spaces that we create that improve our own well-being and in particular improve our cognition. So maps, diagrams, written language, um, all of those things, and they appear in ancient times going back now 70,000 years, perhaps longer, and in many ways, those are the first concrete representations of abstract thought. We don't know when or how language developed, and we probably are unlikely to know, maybe, but at this point we don't. But we do have ancient representations of thought on stones, in caves, on bones, and everywhere. So putting our minds in space in this abstract way seems to be distinctly human. Um, Gorillas don't do it. Bonobos don't do it. They might gesture a bit. Apparently those gestures are mainly used for grooming or for sex or to grab something that somebody has that you want, but they don't represent how to get from one place to another. Um, they, the, and, and the great apes don't might point, but their eyes don't follow the other's point. So it, it seemed to me if there was a leap to humans, putting thought in the world was that. And the diagrams and, and maps and beautiful creatures that are in cave, caves and on stones all over the world are the first concrete evidence of that. 
That's a long introduction to the book. <laughs> it's fantastic. Okay, uh, the book itself, you know, in academics, your brownie points are for publishing articles, especially theory. And it, 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 Steve Pinker, um, Doug Hofstadter wrote books that were accessible to the public and opened that path for other people. Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. And it was serendipitous. I met an agent. She said, you have a book in you, right? Everyone tells you to write a book, right? And I thought, how does she know that? (laughs) (laughs) So it seemed an opportunity to not be so uptight in my scientific um, tight genes and to reach out. I, I mean, I realized... If you write something general and appealing to a large public, you're simplifying things, but then people simplify. So I should do the simplification. And and it was just a pleasure and a joy doing it. It was hard, but, um, and I based it in part on courses I'd been teaching, but which allowed me some expansion although I quickly discovered you can't turn courses into a book. It's a different medium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's such an, I mean, it must have been quite a project because it is a a totally all-encompassing book in some ways. It's, if someone had said, well, there's only going to be one book written about language, you'd scratch your head and say, that's never going to happen. It's just too big. And yet here we have, really the book about how to how we think with movement and, and vice versa. So it's it is just such a treasure trove of so many ideas, which is figuring out where to start with some of the questions. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the things that I remember very distinctly is um the the way you talk about the, the spaces and linearness and if you like linearity. And I think you give an example, it'd be great if you could describe it to readers of how we perceive distances differently depending on where we're, you know, how close we are to. I think you talk about Salt Lake City if you're from San Francisco versus the other side of the country and you perceive these as different distances. I thought that was fascinating as as a data point to break us out of thinking that we understand space, that we actually have to step back and and rethink all of our, all space around us, once you recognize that you're thinking and moving at the same time. Uh, yeah, thank you for that example. It wasn't mine, but uh, it, 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 early on when I was studying, st- begin to study space, I first did some objects and then started thinking about space and that it was distorted. And it was distorted by a number of, you could call them heuristics, that we do to remember things. And I collected them. There was a lot of resistance, both in the psychological community and in the geography community, that our representations, our cognitive maps weren't map-like. They were full of contradictions and and ways to to summarize things. Um, heuristics. So one of them is perspective. And just as when we are at a mountaintop and looking out into a distance, the far distances get telescoped 
they look like they're on top of each other, and the near distances, the things close to us, loom larger. And it, it, so it, it, our representations are that way, too. So this is a study by Keith Holyoke, a beautiful study. And well, I've, I don't remember his first name, Ma, at Michigan many years ago. And Michigan is not in the middle of the country, as some people might think. But he had people there, many of whom who hadn't even left the state, Imagine themselves in New York and estimate the distances between pairs of cities across the country east-west. And yes, one was how far is Salt Lake from San Francisco. And if you're taking an East Coast perspective, that distance seems small. And the distance between New York and Philadelphia, or New York and Pittsburgh, which is about the same, seems large. But if you take a West Coast perspective... It's the opposite. The distance to Salt Lake from San Francisco seems large, and the distance between um, Pittsburgh and New York seems small. So it, 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 and that phenomenon has been replicated in many places. Another one that is surprising to people um, is that people think that an ordinary place, say Jacques' house, is closer to the Eiffel Tower than the Eiffel Tower to Jacques' house. Now, that defies any Euclidean measurement, and it's a little bit similar to work that Eleanor Roche did. People think that magenta is closer to red than red to magenta, and work that my husband long ago did, that people think that North Korea is closer to China than China to North Korea. So China and and um, and the Eiffel Tower are landmarks. They can be landmarks in any space. I mean, 9-11 will be a temporal landmark, and people will move things closer to 9-11. So they define the whole region of you know, the area around Paris. And, and the Jacques House is just Jacques House. So the region encompasses many things around it, and things are perceived to be closer. But it does defy, people think this is again work of my husband, the son is more similar to the father than the father to the son. So there are those asymmetries in, in that are conceptual and have to do with these these prototypic stimuli or landmarks in any space that draw other things into it do that distortion. So there are a whole set of things like that that distort our geographic memory, they distort our social memory, our political memory, um, or our representations. And the fact that they happen in space is one of the hints that we're putting these other spaces, we're mapping them onto space. So we have a space of a political space, more than one, and a social space, and a color space, and we call them spaces. And they are, in some sense, mapped on the spaces that surround us and that we navigate in. And so the same phenomena appear in all of them. 
I find that to be fascinating because being someone who's lived both in New York and San Francisco, you know, thinking through that comparison, that makes sense to me. I can, I can, I can at least identify with maybe some long seated memory. It's been a long time since I've lived in either place that those, those, those distances feel different when you're in different sides of the country. It, it, it it strikes me as almost uh, the, the one that grabs me the most is most intriguing is the color space. Mm-hmm. Is thinking about red as a primary color being the one of the dominant colors in the color space. You know, red is RGB. It is one of the. It, but even though I've spent a you know a career dealing with color, it, it still struck me as quite it's quite un, quite uh, it's sort of confounding that the comparison between red and magenta. I hadn't really thought about having color in the same space in a way that you could think about in terms of geography. It was a fascinating way to just sort of create a new mental model for me about how we think about the world, that everything has a space and that there are primary points in each that then create this sort of gravitational pull or sort of magnetic. It either draws you toward or pushes you away from um, those those central points. Yeah, it's um, fascinating when you th- you run that China North Korea one through your mind, and yeah, it totally happens. You you feel it. You feel mm-hmm. that experience, and um, it 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 seems that that you could you could see that also with um, ideas and just with abstract concepts and with data <laughs> that you have a a landmark on on um, some big data point that you care about and that you know about. I don't know whether it's like, you know, pick a KPI. Revenue. Revenue. I was going to pick that. And then <laughs> something else is is not as much of a landmark as revenue, but it feels you, you, you benchmark it against that. You have that same asymmetry. And almost with decisions as well, I, I think um, Phil Tetlock says that you should flip sentences around so instead of asking what is the chances of xyz happening you say what are the chances of xyz not happening and it causes you to just flip that thinking and think about it differently and I'm wondering with that geographic one whether we also think about how far apart they are as also being easier like if it's if they're closer to if we think of it like I think of driving from New York to um, Pittsburgh as easy and from mm-hmm. San Francisco to Salt Lake is hard. Mm-hmm. And you can end up making that conflation as well. So you think that something's easier just because it's further away, because it's not because it's easier, just because you don't have that spatial reasoning locked down in the same way. And you don't carry a, a genuine map or in your head. It, it, I mean, I agree with you completely. It, it, those dimensions are going to be correlated. Is it easier? It, it, you think of driving, oh, how I would get there as a surrogate for distance. And, of course, we use that all the time. Um, when someone says, how far is somebody, you say a five-hour drive. And you don't give the mileage. So we trade those things off. What it also, I think, reflects all of it is it's hard to think in dimensions, Mm. whether they're probabilities or dollars or and to allocate each point on one to 100 equally. We're drawn to categories. And Tetlock points this out. My husband pointed it out 
work with Danny Kahneman in his work with him years ago that you sort of say unlikely, likely in the middle. You don't, we're not good at thinking in these more 9%, 10%, and Tetlock super forecasters are better able to do that. So we we tend to categorize because it's easier. You're you're a Democrat or a Republican, you know. You go to if you're at Stanford, you're it's Stanford or Cal, and you don't see the nuances. It's simply easier to think in categories than dimensions. And so this kind of heuristic is really. Making categories out of, as you say, the landmarks, the salient examples. I mean, we think militarily that way, too. I mean, the the conflict in Ukraine, people keep saying, well, remember Chamberlain. So we have that scenario, which is before World War II, as a category, and we compare things to it. And it is an easier way of thinking than trying to lay things out on the relevant dimension or dimensions and evaluating that way. I hadn't thought of categorization as essentially a failure of our ability to think on dimensions. There are many categories that don't have dimensions, like furniture and fruit and vegetables. So the world does provide us with categories that are quite discrete, both in appearance and function, so it, there are categories in the world, and those are much easier to keep in mind and think about. In the book, you have uh, a list of the nine laws of cognition, which is a wonderful way of summarizing a lot of the key thoughts in the book. Um, there's one that I wanted to ask you about, which is the eighth law of cognition, which is when thought overflows the mind, the mind puts it into the world. And You've talked about this some in that it's how, going back thousands of years, people would um, draw things on caves, they'd express themselves in that way. But now our modern world has so many more opportunities to put things into the world, lots of more ways to actually put thought out. But there's also a question of whether we want to put our thoughts into things that don't want to take our thoughts right? So trying to put them into machines where there is no way to input, whereas it's quite different from picking up a pen and sketching on a, on a, on a pad. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that law and how you came to it, um, but also how you think about it in sort of the modern day. Yeah, no, really intriguing questions. Um, You know, I sort of, I followed what in retrospect looks like a systematic path in spatial thinking. It wasn't. It was intuitive, and only in at some point I saw what I was doing. I looked at this, the larger spaces, the distortions in them. I looked at the space around the body, how we keep track of the space around the body as we navigate, and I looked at how we think about the space of the body, um, the, the relative sizes of our arms and legs and so forth. And in each case, I showed they were distorted by perception and action, each of them separately with separate reasons, because our perception and action in them or with them is different. And then I started thinking about the spaces we create. 
to augment our own cognition. So sure, we build houses and make clothes. All of that is interesting. But I was more interested in the spaces we create to augment cognition. So those are the, the maps that you find in caves and on stones, which are startling and impressive, even ancient calendars. So, And I've looked a little bit um, at what people were representing. And they were representing other people, animals, bows and arrows, so implements they used. They were representing time in sequences of events or in calendars. And they were representing number in a very simple way, one-to-one correspondences. So these seemed to be the things that were important to people and that they were putting out in space. And they're still representations of time, of number, of people are what you'll see in the newspaper or digitally. They're still, and the brain gives them priorities. So they're all those converging reasons. So, that, But back to what we put in space. In many ways, all our scientific progress, if we want to call it that, or even our failures, military things, where we've destroyed um, countries and people, all of that has depended on the structure of those external representations. So math, physics, um, imagine multiplying two three-digit numbers without pencil and paper, but then imagine multiplying with Roman numerals. So all those, and then calculus and, and geometry, and without geometry, engineering would have been problematic. So that all the technological, intellectual, um, scientific, uh, even artistic advances depended on ways that we crafted those external spaces. So again, you could argue not only are they the first evidence of symbolic thought, but they're the, the key to progress such as it is. And again, you can see that in many civilizations. And each of those things builds on other things. And even storytelling we have captured in the Bayou Tapestry and and Trajan's Column and other places. So it's been fundamental to creating society, numbers. How do we keep track of numbers and accounting? That was there's an argument that that's what led to written language was accounting, keeping track of how many sheep you had, so how much taxes you owed the emperor or the tribal leader. So you can argue that all that, again, that's what made humanity as successful as it is, is, is finding cleverer and more refined ways of putting thought into space on paper usually, but now on a screen, and manipulating it, doing the computations that you needed. The other advantage it has is if it's out there, it's public. We can work together. 
So we've done, other people have done a number of studies showing that having some common workspace promotes collaboration and collective thinking and is key. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more about the problem of sketching. Um, and there, I've been to many conferences on design and engineering design, architecture design, art, where people lament the the going back, learning with pencil and paper, and drawing that way and playing. So we studied architects who were making sketches. We gave them an assignment that they loved experienced architects and novice, newly minted ones. And we looked at their sketches. They couldn't talk while they were drawing because it's not a verbal conversation. It's very intelligent, but not in words. And afterward, they told us things like, you know, they drew for one reason, but looking back at their sketch, they saw new things. So they make discoveries in their own sketches. And we later went on to show it's the ambiguity that allows you to reconfigure what you've seen and find new meanings. The experienced architects were better, so they could look at a sketch of their building and say, the light won't fall well in the winter. That's not in the sketch, They have to make an inference from it, just the way a musician has to make inferences from their notes, and experienced musicians can imagine them, but inexperienced have a harder time doing that. So making inferences about about what's in the world, what you've created in the world, depends also on expertise. And in chess... It's another, how many steps forward can you see in a board? If you're an expert, you can see many. If you're a novice, you're flummoxed. So it, it um, those, and the very act of drawing, the hand movements make a difference. So one of the graduate students I worked with studied something similar in artists for whom drawing is their major reason for success. They're all highly successful artists. And they say they get lost in the drawing, that the drawing leads to other drawings, and that they deliberately get themselves in trouble because they're so adept at the hand movements and arraying things in space that they don't want to repeat themselves. So they do something uncharacteristic and see how they can get out of it. They make challenge. So even the medium makes a difference. Or Kentridge said, I, I can't think in color. I can't think with paint. I can think with charcoal. And you, you see how beautifully he thinks um, with charcoal. So that relationship of it, what his hand can do and how it appears on the page um, yeah, and my guess is Picasso did better with a paintbrush than with charcoal um, so or with lithographs. So it, it, there's something about those actions themselves that are gratifying, a potter, all of that. They're gratifying and they're, they become a way of thinking in and of themselves. So experienced abacus users, if you take the abacus away, they mentally 
or even they make the gestures they would make in calculating with the abacus. That's what helps them think. And we looked at people alone in the room doing multiplication without pencil and paper, and they're writing. Um, in the air, they can't see it, but the very act captures what they would have seen and relates to it in the same way that seeing notes on a page to someone who sings, they can hear it mentally. So, it's like I've got, a, I've got a password in my computer that's a pattern of keys. Yeah. I have absolutely no idea what the password is. Right. I actually have to look at the, the you know, I have to look at a keyboard to. You know do the same thing is. with a phone when you're yeah. trying to remember, right, trying to write the the key, the the four you know pattern key to unlock your iPhone. I watched you do this recently, where you had to write down what the numbers were, and you had to pull up the the, yeah. the telephone keypad to remember what the numbers are. Because I actually have no no idea, yeah. but it, I don't know whether that makes it safer or not safer. Can, can I, just you go. I want to grab what I know. We're both jumping into questions. Um, so I have one question about the the the, the generative act of sketching. You've talked about how sketching helps break fixation on an idea, that that generative idea of sketching um, creates some alternative idea. That's one way to sort of break free of um, an intuition that's too fixed, you know, is that you can actually get more creative by the act of sketching. What is it about that, that generative act? Is it just the exploration that you're seeing something new? Is it the, is it, it or is there something else? Well, it's a great deal, again, the ambiguity that it allows you to reconfigure and to see things differently. So one example from these architects that were designing the museum is they they put something somewhere and something else somewhere and something, and then they saw it was a triangle. And they could use that as a motif, so it that ambiguity, they didn't think of a triangle when they were laying those things out, but I, they could reconfigure it, see it differently, and, and then use it differently. The artist, too, would often draw something, and then they'd look back at it and say, no, that isn't what I intended, but it is this, and now I can use that in this way. And I think if you go back and look at cartoons and sketches, from um, artists, you sometimes get to see them in museums or online. You can see they did that. They made lines for one reason, and the lines got co-opted. So it, it and and the CAD CAM programs rectify, and that doesn't allow that flexibility of reseeing. So think of poetry. Poetry is inherently, usually, ambiguous. And every time you read a poem, you see new things in it. And if you go to to really fine art, you see new things each time. And it, 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 it's that ambiguity it's that lets you see new things interpret things in new way see new relationships among things so it's not completely dependent on ambiguity you can get it from complexity as well but um, complexity also allows you you walk in a city which is complex and you see new relations every time you go you go walking or at least I do, and that's joyful. It's discovery. It's aesthetic. So 
Yeah, and it does free you. I mean, there are other ways of freeing you from fixation. Um, and there's been a lot in the newspaper about some of these ways, like taking a walk or letting your mind wander. And those indeed can help reduce fixation, but they don't give you a good way to solve a problem. And so we looked at that other side of are there, can you both do both, release someone from fixation and give them roots to solving a problem? And we this is work with Julia Chow. And we, so one of the exercises that's often given in, in design classes is think of 10 ways you can use a brick. So it's using familiar objects in unfamiliar ways, and it's kind of fun. And that has been used as a, a creativity task. And in that case, some studies have shown that if you let your mind wander or if you take a walk, you come up with some new ways that you hadn't thought of for using a brick or a ping pong ball. But it it doesn't necessarily give you good ways. So we started thinking, what's a good way to search for new uses? And we thought, well, you could think of new places. You could think of events in time, like birthday parties. You could think, and then we finally realized, think of new roles. We know about roles from childhood. People say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what's your mommy? And um, so we know about roles. We know what firemen do and policemen do and conductors. So we know about roles, doctors. Um, and it, 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 so that's very familiar. Roles involve events and time and also places. So they seem to capture a lot of these human experiences. And sure enough, when we told people um, for new uses of, say, uh, an umbrella um, or a shoe, we, we pre-tested our items. And we told them, think of how a fireman might use it, a gardener might use it, an artist might use it, and so forth. And we compared that to mind-wandering. People did way better with thinking through roles and we could even trace the ideas that they came up with to roles. And people came up with more original roles um, that way than, than with just the mind wandering. So for creative thinking, you need both to free yourself from fixation, but you also need strategies for that are domain-specific. I mean, the new uses anybody can use. But I have a good friend, I often quote this, who's a, uh, a, a an excellent interior designer. And she says when she gets stuck, she goes to an art museum. So it's not letting her mind wander. It's deliberate. That's her way of freeing as well as getting new ideas. And there are these kits for designers that give them that sort of thing. So digitally, you there's a place where digital tools, I'm an architect, I'm designing something, I can easily call up just dozens of other buildings or interiors and use them 
as a way of of spurring my own imagination. Um, And, you know, I think some of the issues with digital tools is learning to be good at them and learning to see what they can do. Um, and what, where, where they're an advantage. So a student spoke yesterday on using virtual reality to overcome speaking anxiety. And there you can have a whole room full of people looking at you in an auditorium and practice your speech. To do that in real life would be very expensive. So that's, I think, good thinking about what can this tool do that our ordinary tools can't do. Um, mm. And and then you, it's not that it's, I mean, people have this law of the hammer, that if you give a kid a hammer, everything needs pounding. Um, and they have the same idea with all these digital tools. Well, think harder about their relative advantages and what they can do that you can't do with paper and pencil or with ink or paint you said a few things about um creativity and about joy and about freedom and about dealing with abstractions but in a way that is creative and variable like there's a a a variability and unpredictability and it such a nice contrast with um statistical thinking and and having to be like completely not variable in our thinking. And what struck me as you were talking about that is you can have the best of both worlds, right? So if you constrain your it, the, 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 the scope of variability, if you like, you go to the art gallery because that constrains the domain you're thinking in as opposed to you just let your mind wander completely and you just come up with random stuff. Seems like there's a nice golden rule there that says when you're going to be, um, when you really do need to be creative, you're searching for insight, you need to open your mind. Don't do it so that it's just so open that you you don't have a physical um, spatial guide around your own limits. There's almost a, if you walk around a city and anything's, anything's up for grabs, um, compared to going to the art gallery, you almost get this visceral guidance that comes from the space around you that says only focus on, on this thing. It's, it's almost a way of sort of bounding the, the variability or, or guiding it into the right channel. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And then even, you know, if we're working on a problem, we can't help but it stays there. We can't help but think about it. So even our view of the city or the art gallery is selective. And and we're finding things there that somehow fit this problem that's um, circulating in our heads. So it that also, it's an interplay between inside and outside. And on ambiguity and clarity, if I'm if I'm putting together a new bicycle or a barbecue, I want clarity. 
Right. I want the dis- instructions to be absolutely clear. I don't want them to be like a Roscoe painting, right? So there, and sometimes with statistical data, I need actually the numbers to put into an equation in order to get the best possible outcome. Uh, so that there are times when I need the high accuracy and the clarity and the precision, both with numbers and language and with diagrams of various kinds. And there are times when I want it to, or I need it to be more open. You listen to a talk and it, it might not be completely clear. You might not get all of it, but you don't need those details. On the other hand, you might. So then you are taking careful notes and worrying about the places you don't understand. So we're always dealing with that sort of thing. We looked at it at some point, this isn't in the book, in memory. And we, one of my graduate students collected, and I collected undergraduate students, the stories they tell to each other when they come home at night or they come home in the afternoon to the dorm. And we asked them, um, you know, did you exaggerate? Did you omit details that were important? Did you add a few details? And they all said, yep, (laughs) we added details. We not always, but often to me. So you're taking literary license. And then we did another study asking people how they respond to those things. And they they're skeptical about the details. And so you, your roommate comes home and says, I have four tests in three days and I haven't slept and I have two papers and this. And the bottom line is your roommate's stressed out. You're not counting the papers of the exams. The message is, I'm stressed out. Stay away. <laughs> so it, it, we're always dealing with that, even in everyday life, um, with the clarity precision but yeah in in sometimes we need clarity and sometimes we need um the ambiguity that uh, there's a different kind of clarity and ambiguity that seems to happen between um automated decision making systems and humans and i'm thinking very specifically about one one particular example that i've i've found quite fascinating which was the case of um Qantas Flight 92, I think it was, from Singapore to Perth when the Airbus um, autopilot thought that the plane was about to stall, so it dove the plane. And the pilot was a uh, a Top Gun pilot trained in the US who'd moved into commercial flight in um, Australia. But he um, was able to literally wrestle this plane back from going nosedive into the nose down into the Indian Ocean and he's he wrote a book about this experience because he he had to give up flying because the whole thing was was just too difficult yeah totally traumatic and it did it twice you know and he um it's it's a fascinating story because he was one of the the propositions in the in the that he put forward is that it was his flight experience in fly-by-wire jets, you know, we and, and in jets that where he had just this totally intuitive sense of how 
an aircraft is supposed to feel. And and there's a lot of commentary about how there would have been very few pilots other than someone trained like him that could have rescued the situation. Mm-hmm. And um, it the, there's this sort of gap between when the machines fail at something that humans are really good at but require so much training and practice to get it right. And we're going into this world of self-driving cars mm-hmm. where it's one thing to have people like, you know, power system controllers and pilots and, um, you know, experts that can run simulations and can keep their training active. But I can't imagine a world where a 16-year-old gets a driver's license just cause and then never drives for three years but then has to take over when something goes wrong. with I, That just doesn't compute in my mind mm-hmm. about how we think about the average human having to perform at peak performance but never having any experience. And I just I don't know how to, to pull that together as a way of thinking about modern automation. I know you're right on with those dilemmas. Um, absolutely. And self-driving cars, in my mind, will work when they're all self-driving. And not when you've got, but even then humans can cross the street in the middle of the street. I live in New York. Everybody walks and now there are scooters and bicycles and everything coming in and out of traffic. It looks like um, Mumbai (laughs) um, with a number of vehicles and there it somehow works, or at least a little bit of it that I saw somehow works um, on the ground, but that is people um, kind of dealing. I mean, there are dogs that move aside for me on the sidewalk, so, which is kind of surprising. Um, but, yeah, no, I share that. And when humans are more fallible than the machines, you know, I'm sure that the pilot systems are better because of these two near misses that are horrifying to think about. And so they do improve. Anticipating everything is that could possibly happen is really hard. And I share your hesitance about giving up control. On the other hand, it's not, what if self-driving cars turned out to have fewer accidents than people, but still had accidents and I think we're far less tolerant of accidents that machines commit than accidents that people commit. Yeah, and there's, there is definitely a quite good research about how we judge machines differently, even with the same outcome. And um, I just think the cars have to learn the cultural nature of driving in each individual setting. I mean, driving in Boston has one kind of cultural adaptation required because of the nature of Boston drivers. New York City is totally different. As one of my great friends who's lived in New York for a very long time, um, when I first moved back to New York, he said, now just remember, lane lines in New York City are merely a suggestion. Yeah, but on the other (laughs) hand, in New York, and this I feel cultures, New Jersey is different from New York. Oh, it's totally different. (laughs) In New York, they know it's all pedestrians who are going to walk on the street at any moment. 
and they're prepared to stop and they don't get they don't slam on the horn because you're not supposed to and so forth. On the weekends, they come in from New Jersey and Connecticut. They're not used to pedestrians. They're used to having the open road, and they go through red lights. And right. So I'm with you completely on that. The cultures yeah. are very local. And, um, yes. and, and the driving, I was once taken from, uh, from the Netherlands to Germany to catch an airplane, and the driver, who was very experienced, completely changed driving when he got into Germany from the Netherlands. Because it's, it's, it's just a different... So, yeah, and it, I think that's the stumper on, on self-driving cars is the social, the dogs that run out into the street and the people. And, yeah, and we can deal with that. You know, I'm watching that when I cross the street, the drivers, where is the driver looking? Mm. And if the driver, I'm not in the driver's field division, I better be. It's the same with people with walking with their phones and not taking in anything. Um, and they think they are, but they're not. So it, it uh, even walking has become uh, an issue now because of so many people looking at their phones and not the, at people around them. I, I want to ask um uh, one question to help see if you can help me solve a, a, a personal quandary I've had for, for many years. So Helen has an ability to identify a thought and a memory based on where she is in, in, in space, in, 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 her, in her environment. So she'll come back from a long mountain bike ride and remember one line that someone said in a podcast based on exactly where she is on the turn in a trail. And she can, she can narrate the podcast based on the, the path that she took. And I've never understood how that's possible. I mean, maybe we're wired quite differently. I have no sense of direction. I could come out of the, I come out of the subway in New York and I have to look at the signs to figure out where I'm, where I am going. Whereas she, you could spin her around in the middle of the dark and she can point at a compass. But I'm curious about that ability to associate a memory with a place. Can you help me understand how she does that? So I don't think it's that atypical, and I don't think it's dependent on um, sense of direction or navigating space. It's good to see that Helen is better than you because there is a, uh, at navigating, there is this preconception that men are better. And oh no! I'm completely terrible and completely yeah. delegate. Absolutely, I, I I sit behind the wheel and and she just tells me where to go. And it's a, it's it's a wonderful happy synergy that we found there. <laughs> my father was hopeless too. So, um, and each of my children is different. Some are uncanny, but uh, but remembering remembering where you were when something happened is probably a good way it's probably built in in some sense because if you go back to the cave days remembering where there was food or where there was danger um those that's important to your livelihood um and and you may have some implicit memory even if you can't recollect it and you know that is the basis for the uh, method of loci which the the Romans used to remember their speeches. So they would remember the walk they took through the market 
And at each temple or spot, they would associate a certain paragraph of their speech. And then as they gave it, they would walk through that. And that method is one of the methods that memory experts teach older people who are having trouble remembering. It's one of the methods. Interestingly, it was the only piece, according to Jonathan Spence, um, a, a wonderful Chinese historian, it was the only insight, Western insight, that the Jesuit priest who, who tried to convert China brought to China. They were all, many of them were scholars and taking exams because that was a way of gaining interesting occupations and memory was part of it. And the, the, the method of low, this particular Jesuit priest in the, I think the 15th century taught them the method of loci. And they thought that was great. The book is called Memory Palace. And right. So, and I think my guess is even you who say you don't have that good memory of place, if you went back to places, it would evoke memories. That's my guess. I, I have connection between feeling and emotion and place. I can remember my space, myself in a, in a space and I can remember the emotion. I don't track the conversation or, or the thought pattern as well. We do a lot of thinking and walking. Um, that's where a lot of our best ideas come from. And I know that's a, a, one of the legendary stories from Amos and Danny is the long walks and, the, and trying to, you know, sort of break the back of new ideas. And that's definitely where a lot of our best ideas come from. One of the reasons we love living in a, in a mountainous um, place is we get to take lots of walks together. But I, I associate the emotion and the feeling um, but not necessarily the fact. And it's so it's kind of an interesting, you know, it's an interesting difference. Yeah, no, and, and conversation could be anywhere. But if you had memories that were deeply associated mm. with a place, then uh, my guess is they would come back. But right, conversation is could be anywhere. It doesn't have any meaningful connection to space. So um, Helen is impressive. <laughs> Thank you. So many. Words. Oh, well, fantastic! <laughs> I know we're right at time. I've got a, I've got a, a question that's. Um, I, I hope you can take it two more minutes on this. But um, I, I'm wondering about if if someone doesn't have a mind's eye, they don't have the ability to 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 see and like the, and imagine in the same way that uh, that we do. Mm. That whether that gives them a a different perspective on on motion and on think and on moving their thought outside their mind. So blind people can be very good at navigating. It's spatial, not visual. And I think it's those of us blessed with sight and with visual imagery um, often confuse them. But blind people can navigate beautifully. They can understand abstract mathematics, geometry. They, they gesture. They've never seen gesture, people blind from birth. They gesture in many of the ways that we gesture, um, which is using space and actions in it to convey um, other information, to represent other information. So spatial is to great 
can be independent of visual and people can be very gifted at spatial thinking without having visual imagery or even vision. You're quite right. I had completely put the two together. Mm. And um, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, yes. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, so what you're saying, it is a different system altogether. And it's accessed by many modalities. So I know walking New York City where it's going to be windy. And I keep track of locations by wind, by smells, the pizza parlor, um, and the smells of garlic, the smells that emanate from places, and that is how blind people do it, the surface, how it feels when I'm walking on it. So and all those cues I'm sure we're using implicitly, and blind people are using them implicitly, but there, our sense of space is multimodal. It isn't, I mean, vision helps a lot, but it's, it's multimodal and more abstract. And you can see that in the, in the brain convergence at the taxi drivers, the London taxi drivers that Eleanor McGuire studied don't have a mental map of London. They just know how to, they have a spatial feeling of where they are, how far they've driven, when they need to turn, when turns are coming up and things like that. But it isn't that they're, they're imagining a map in their heads and driving along it. And I, my guess is that's true of the two of you as well, that you know how to drive and walk places without having an image of a map. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and, and I know that walking, even now I could go travel back to New York City and I'd come around a corner and I'd lean in to the wind. Yeah. Because I'd still, even though I can't tell you exactly where that is, um, I, I know patterns to know well enough that I remember doing that. When I used to walk to work, I'd come around a corner and I'd have to lean in. Or I'd know that's where the garbage is stored at the back of that building. You know, All of those kinds of things, you, get, you do build this recognition through multisensory experience. And how much spatial thinking goes into that intuitive process that you described if it's abstract reasoning? Um, you talked about you weren't being systematic with your research. You were just sort of following an intuition. Marcus de Satoy talks about that in terms of his, his mathematical proofs. He sort of gets a feeling, gets an intuition that this is a good place to go, that this is going to be interesting he makes a judgment that it's worthwhile as well as being a mathematical proof that's possible but and he describes that as an incredibly intuitive process which I think for mathematics is the almost one of the most interesting places to talk about intuition guiding us sort of it, it puts intuition back into a bit of a, a bit of a positive light rather than flawed you know humans are intuitive and we make mistakes and all that kind of stuff so intuition can be honed from experience. Mm -hmm. And the best intuitions are honed from a great deal of experience. I mean, Danny Kahneman talks about this and, and had uh, many conversations with Gary Klein, who's on the side of intuitionists, his firefighters who by the floor could tell that it was about to collapse, get out of the building. But it's based on years of experience. So another way to think about it is sports. You look at basketball. That's incredibly rapid thinking. You have to fake out the other team, communicate to your own team, split second catching a ball, who do you pass it to, or do you take it yourself and dribble? 
it's all split second, but it's based on, so it's intuitive in that sense, but it's based on years of experience and play. So that kind of intuition is on the whole good. You're riding the bicycle, you're going to have intuitions about when to slow down, when to speed up, how to take a curve, um, and even walking, we have those. But those, if you look at a baby learning to walk, it's very careful, and they fall all the time, and parents don't pick them up, they'll get up, they're okay, they, they're not going to hurt themselves, they're too close to the ground. You're learning a lot from that about building up the intuition. It, I mean, remember learning how to ride a bike, it was deliberate, but then it became in your body just the way basketball players play basketball, so those intuitions, even about people who we're going to like or who not, are built from a great deal of experience. They can be wrong. So, you know, we can be, we're fallible even with a great deal of intuitions. My intuitions did take me to good places to study. There were places where my intuitions um, were mistakes. I won't go into those. (laughs) (laughs) Looking back, I can see where my intuitions were were erroneous. I should have acted differently and didn't have the wisdom to do it at the time. But good intuitions are based on you internalize all that experience and it becomes inaccessible. When you think about thinking or talking, words pop to our mind. We don't know where they come from. And unless we're speaking a language we don't speak well, we're not deliberately choosing each word. They just come out. And I think much of our interactions are like that. When I have to work hard on a new idea, then I become more self-conscious about how I'm getting the ideas and where they're coming from and how to manipulate that. But a great deal of our behavior is inaccessible to um, to introspection. Thank you for following your intuition, if that's what it was, <laughs> and um, putting your thought into the world in the form of a book. Uh, thank um, you. At- we, we both very much enjoyed it. It's highly readable and interesting. And I find myself, you know, we, we find ourselves continuously probing the ideas and trying to figure out how to translate them to others. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. I mean, what you're saying is very gratifying. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's better than